Uh, today we are going to continue our series in Acts uh, that we're calling the Church on Fire. When uh, Kyle called me a couple of months ago and said, hey, I'm going to be taking the study break. Here's a couple of scriptures you might want to think about. He gave me a choice. And so the ones that I picked, it's actually from two different chapters in Acts, Acts 12 and Acts 14, and um, similar stories but different responses, okay? So uh, it's not something we, that we probably uh, have preached on a lot, but it's really, really interesting stories, and I've enjoyed uh, studying and preparing for that. And really the goal of looking at these verses is to answer this question. Is it all about me? Now, the, the answer to that question seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? But if you're an infant or a man, <laughs> the answer to that question is probably regularly, yeah, yeah, it is all about me. Uh, I know just personally in my life, I'm challenged on a pretty regular basis with trying to make it all about me. <coughs> Selfishness, pride, arrogance, wanting to have power. I'll admit, those are all things that I have struggled with in the past. Unfortunately, I think we all do. They're pretty uh, common human traits. <coughs> we take pride in a lot of different things. Our education, our wealth, our possessions, our standing in the community, our standing in the church. Um, our jobs, the list goes on and on and on. And when, and when you're driven by that, those characteristics, um, pride, selfishness, search for power, you act in some awful ways. You do some awful things. Here's a list of some of the things I, that I've done. <clears throat> manipulate people and manipulate situations tear other people down, thinking that I'm lifting myself up. Taking credit for the accomplishments of other folks. Bullying people until I get my way. Delight when I see others struggling. Gossip, covet, worship the idol of materialism. Probably sounds familiar to you. We, we have all done it. I could go on and on. God hates that. He doesn't like it when we act that way, but we all do it periodically. Hopefully it's not the theme in your life, but I think if we're all honest, we do it periodically. We have to daily guard our hearts from the desire to please ourselves. Um, and, and we're warned against this really throughout the Bible. Uh, Proverbs 16 Verse 18, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Isaiah 2, starting verse 11, the prophet Isaiah, after describing Israel's penchant to turn from God, to seek wealth and to worship idols and to take pride in their own accomplishments, he says it this way, the eyes of the arrogant will be humbled and human pride brought low. The Lord, the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, 
and they will be humbled. It's pretty sobering, isn't it? Here's one from the New Testament, Romans 12, 6. Um, and this is Paul after he's described what active love looks like. He says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Now, let's get to our first passage in, in Act 12. Uh, Acts 12, I start with verse 19. And this story um, is a good example of what pride, selfishness, arrogance, and the, de and the desire for power will do to you. Um, the main characters in this story are Herod Agrippa and uh, some representatives from the towns of Tyre and Sidon. Okay, like I said, it's not a passage we look at often. And here's the way it starts. I'm going to read the first half of this scripture. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. All right, let me give you a little background and, and so you can kind of understand the dynamics in this story. First off, we need to understand that there are four different generations of Herods mentioned in the New Testament. Herod the Great, he's the, he's the first one we know. He's king of Judea, so he's over the Jews. Uh, and he was uh, in power during the time of Jesus' birth. He's the one who sent the Magi to Bethlehem to find Jesus under the pretense of worshiping him. And when they found the baby Jesus, they did worship him. And they were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. So they went a different route back home. And Herod, when he realized, Herod the Great, when he realized what had happened, <coughs> put the decree out that all the, children, the boys in Bethlehem, two years and younger, and in the vicinity, should be killed. Herod the Great had six sons. The second generation, one of his sons, Herod Antipas, he was the ruler over Galilee. He's the one that had John the Baptist beheaded. <coughs> and he also participated in the trial of Jesus. That's in Luke 23. And then the third generation of Herod, it's our guy today. We'll get to him in just a second. He was actually grandson of Herod the Great, nephew of Herod Antipas. And then the last one, I'm going to call him Herod Agrippa Jr., uh, but he, he was Herod Agrippa's son. He's the one at the end of Acts, Acts 25 and 26, actually heard Paul's defense against the charges from the Jewish community. So anyway, those are the four Herods. We're talking about the third one, okay, in today's lesson. All right, that's one player. Now, who were these folks from Tyre and Sidon, and why did they matter? Well, Tyre... It was a harbor town on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, due north of Jerusalem. Because it was a port city, lots of trade going on, they had a lot of wealth, and it's linked often with Sidon. Now, Sidon was another city that was about 20 miles uh, down the coast from Tyre. Um, 
this whole area where Tyre and Sidon were, and, and it was also a port city, same, similar to Tyre, but this whole area uh, was where a lot of things went on from a, from a uh, marketing standpoint and shipping, shipbuilding. The area was called Phoenicia, and Phoenicia means purple. Purple cloth was dyed from fluid that was extract, extracted from mollusks that were found in the Mediterranean Sea. So this, this sign of wealth, this purple dye, where they dyed cloth uh, from, was shipped and distributed throughout the world from there. Um, this is also very important that you need to understand about Tyre and Sidon. Lots of cedar trees. They had actually supplied the cedar timbers for the first temple, uh, Solomon's temple, and for the, the temple that was rebuilt. And they were paid by the leaders, by the kings, by the Herods for those timbers in wheat and olive oil. And that be, had become a tradition where they were getting a lot of their food from the Herods. So there's the relationship. Uh, okay. This is the nerdy historian in me. I apologize. Um, today, Tyre and Sidon is in the country of Lebanon. Has anybody ever been to Lebanon, Tennessee, to the Cedars of Lebanon State Park? You know why Lebanon, Lebanon Tennessee was named after Lebanon? The Cedars. Um, and, and actually, I didn't know this. I had to look this up on Wikipedia, so it's got to be true. Um, <laughs> Lebanon, Tennessee was founded in 1801, and it is nicknamed Cedar City. Not charged it at all for that point right there. All right, now back to Tyre and Sidon. Uh, this Phoenician uh, region had gotten crossways with Herod Agrippa. The original language in this passage intimates that Agrippa was planning war. And the last thing that the people from Tyre and Sidon wanted was war with Herod. They were self-governing, but they didn't, want, they didn't want to be attacked. So in an effort for diplomacy, the leaders of Tyre and Sidon decided, let's go to Caesarea and let's meet with Herod. So when they got there, they started working the, the back channels and they got the support of Blastus, who was not only a trusted servant of Herod, he was Herod's treasurer. He held the purse strings. Probably had something to do with the food that, that needed to be sent to Tyre to Sidon. So their plan was to ask for peace when they met with Herod. There's a little bit of manipulation, I think, going on with both parties in this situation. So let's finish reading beginning in verse 21 of Acts 12. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. Right here, Herod's got a decision to make. He made the wrong one. 
immediately because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down. He was eaten by worms and died. Wow. The people are heaping praises on him because of this wonderful speech that he's made. And you can be the judge about the sincerity of that praise. But in that flattery, they shouted, this is the voice of God, not a man. And how did Herod respond? Kind of like I respond a lot. You got that right. I am the main man. I am God. And immediately, the Lord sent an angel, struck him down. He was eaten by worms and died. And I want to make a point here in the order. It didn't say he died and then was eaten by worms. It says he was eaten by worms and then he died. What a way to go. Whew. That uh, had to be not only horribly painful for Herod, but probably pretty horrible to watch. Uh, but that's, that's what the scripture says. Remember the warnings in scripture? Isaiah 2.12, it says, The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty. The day came for Herod. Galatians 6.3 says, If anyone thinks there's something... When they are not, they deceive themselves. God's dramatic answer to Herod was, Herod, it's not all about you. Y'all, I have been guilty of this, and I want to tell you a personal example. Letting pride and arrogance get in my way. Taking credit for what God actually did. My first four years after college were I lived in Birmingham, Alabama, and I went to church at the Homewood Church of Christ, a little bit south of Birmingham. Had a big singles group, and I was uh, involved in it. Homewood was divided up into visitation teams, groups of five or six families, 10 or 12 folks, and we would meet every other month on a Sunday night, and here's the way it worked. You would get a card with somebody who had recently visited the church, and that card uh, would, it was usually somebody in your demographic, lived pretty close to where you lived, and your goal was to go visit that person, thank them for coming, and invite them to come back to church, okay? And um, how you performed during that interim period when we met again, it was a point system, and all the teams were in competition. So if you tried to call them but didn't get an answer, that was one point. If you called them, left a voicemail, that was two. If you called them and actually talked to them, that was three points. If you tried to go visit but they weren't there, four points. But if you went and knocked on their door and talked to them and invited them, five points. Now, I was a, I was a loser. I was a, I was a single young man who usually lost his card. And when the next meeting came, I was like, you got to be kidding. It's time for the visitation team meeting again. And I would scramble and show up with one or two points, maybe. And after a few months of that, I was tired of being the guy who was really dragging our team down. So I made a concerted effort that I was going to make that visit this time. 
So Saturday rolled around. Of course, you know, still have one day before the meeting on Sunday. Saturday rolled around, and I got my card, and literally it was probably four blocks from where I lived. I went to visit this young man who had visited uh, Homewood. And I walked into his apartment building, kind of inside entrances, had my card, had some information uh, about Homewood to give him. And I knocked on the door. Nothing. I mean, dead silence. In my mind, I'm thinking, it's four points. <laughs> and so I thought, well, I'll, I'll give it one more try. So I knocked on the door one more time, and I waited. And this time, I heard some rustling. I was like, hey, there's somebody in there. So I waited, and I waited, and finally, this guy comes, and he opens the door. He's just like me. He's a single guy. He has obviously just rolled out of bed because I woke him up. It's about 10.30 in the morning. His hair is going everywhere. He's got on a pair of gym shorts, and that's it. And he is like, who in the world is knocking on my door? And so he opens the door, and I go, hey, are you so-and-so? And he goes, yeah. I said, my name is Keith Main, and I'm from the Homewood Church of Christ, and you visited our church a few weeks back and I just want to thank you for that visit and here's some information about Homewood and he said yeah he said um, my, my dad's a, a minister up in Florence <laughs> he said uh, they were in town that weekend so you know I needed to take him to church so I took him to church and uh, and uh, I said well well thanks for coming you're welcome back anytime we got a big singles group get involved man and I walked away, and in my mind and in my heart, I was not thinking, boy, that guy needs to reconnect with Jesus. As I walked down the hall to get back in my car, here's what I thought. Five points. Five big ones. Man, I'm going I'm to show them tomorrow. I am not the loser tomorrow. That next day on Sunday, he was at church. And over the next several months, he came to church pretty regularly, and he, he got involved in our singles group. A year or so passed, he met a girl there, he started dating her, and then about three years passed, and he married her. And then I got transferred to Nashville with my job, and one, the last Wednesday night I was at Homewood, they had a little going away, get together for me. And he came up to me and he said, you probably don't remember this. He said, but a few years ago, you came to my apartment and you knocked on my door and you invited me to come to church. He said, I just want to say thank you for doing that. Um, he said, that, it really made a difference. And I said, oh, man, I said, I'd almost forgotten about that. I was, that was a lie. I was still patting myself on the back for that. In my attitude, in my arrogance, in my selfishness, did I do anything for that guy? God took this little minuscule effort that I had made and he changed his life. He did wonderful things for him. It was not me, but I wanted to make it all about me.
All right, let's look at our second passage in Acts 14. I want you to look at how Paul and Barnabas react to this very similar situation. It's funny how these two stories mirror each other. A little lead up to this story. Paul and Barnabas are in Iconium, and they're sharing about Jesus at the Jewish synagogue. There are many Jews and even Gentiles that have believed because of what they've been saying. But there was also a handful of Jews who did not believe, and they were intent on stirring up trouble. So as a confirmation that for Paul and Barnabas of you know, what they're saying is true, God's grace gave them the power of healing. And um, those miraculous signs and wonders that they were doing was just to confirm, listen to these guys. What they are saying is true. So let's read Acts 14, beginning in verse 8. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconium language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus. Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. Does that sound familiar? Sounds a lot like what happened to Herod, doesn't it? Uh, And not only do they call him gods, Zeus and Hermes, but they get the priest of Zeus to bring bulls and wreaths because they want to offer sacrifices to him. It's an opportunity for Paul to shine. Man, I've been through a lot for the sake of Jesus. Bring it on. Just let the glory reign. Uh, But he reacts... In, a to- in the total opposite way that Herod reacted. Paul, Barnabas, is it all about you? Emphatically, they say, no, it's not. Their actions pro- provide a clear answer. Look at verse 14. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, friends, Why are you doing this? We too are only human, like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Paul and Barnabas' reaction was to react the way Jesus would have reacted. They don't take advantage of the situation for their own good. They give credit (coughs) and honor where credit is due. 
we are mere men. We are human, just like you. The true God is the God who heals. Listen to our message. God loves you, and he gave his son for your sins. You need to turn away from these worthless things that you think are so important, and you need to turn your life toward God. He created everything in this world for you. He loves you. He wants what's best for you. He was even willing to sacrifice his son, give his son's life, so that you could be free from the guilt of your sins. Because you can't do it yourself. This was a completely opposite reaction, wasn't it? And it's the way as Christians we should react and try to live our lives. So how do we react when faced with the opportunity to make it all about us? React like Paul and Barnabas. How do we keep our selfishness and arrogance and pride from running amok? Here's the answer. Live like Jesus lived. Love like Jesus loved. Then you won't have time for making it all about you. Here's how Paul says it in Romans 12. And uh, this is uh, right after he's given some instructions about how to live like Jesus in a, in a fallen world. Uh, he says, love must be sincere Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. That is about the soundest advice you can get for loving like Jesus loved. Not letting your selfish nature take over. Be sincere. Hate evil. Flee from it. Love what's good. Love and honor others above yourself. Have a great attitude. Be fervent in your worship. Be joyful. Be patient. Be prayerful. Share with the needy. Open your homes to others. This one's kind of counterintuitive. Bless your persecutor. That's hard to do, but boy, it's the only way to live with forgiveness, is it? Just bless them. Meet people where they are. Rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Mourn with those who are mourning. That's how we live like Jesus. But there's another passage that I think even better says it because this, this describes Jesus and his humility. It's one we're all familiar with. Worship team, if you want to come back up. This is from Philippians 2. I'm going to start about halfway through it uh, in verse 5. <clears throat> in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, 
being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him above the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's it. That's the example. That's hard to do, but that's how Jesus did it better than anyone in history has ever done it. It's his example of how God wants us to live our lives, not continually chasing after the next accomplishment, the next accolade or praise, the next high-end purchase. None of that satisfies. We know that. You get it, you do it, you receive it, and you're left wanting more. Be like Jesus. Take the very nature of a servant in all that you do. Be willing to make sacrifices for other folks. Live unselfishly without pride and a lust for power. Is it all about me? No. Living like Jesus makes our lives and our relationships in this tough and fallen world so much better. Put that into practice. Thank you.